Um, so as Larry said earlier, um, this is our last Sermon of the Better Together series. As you can see, our banners around the room. And uh, I'm really excited to be here. And um, Larry's given me the topic of one body. Uh, how does the church function as one body? What does that mean for our lives? And today, as Simon just shared with us, we're focused on Romans 12 and a bit of a passage in Romans 4 as well. And I just want to commend to you that these chapters are super, super, super practical. I'm going to give you some of my thoughts and reflections on it, but I hope that you're going to take something home with you. There's going to be applications, no doubt, that is going to mean something for your life. Before we get started, though, I really want to encourage you to get a pen, get a phone out. There's pens in the pews, right on the back of your news about whatever it is, and just look for one question. I'm going to ask, like, so many questions as we go, again and again and again, every bit I'm going to ask questions. I just want you to look for one thing that you can take home with you. Because I'm going to walk through verse by verse of what Paul says, and something is going to stick out, I promise. So I'm going to break up this into three main sections, and here they are just here. Uh, I'm going to talk first about what it means to be a living sacrifice. The second bit is using our grace-given gifts, a little bit of alliteration for you. And our last bit is why does Paul talk about one body? Why is that so important to him? And there's tons of gold here, so I'm just going to pray, and we're going to get straight into it and get going. Lord God, I want to ask that you would come and guide us this evening. Help us to just be still, to listen. Speak to us through your word and from what I've prepared. May this text spur us on to be becoming better together. Amen. Cool. So because this text starts with a therefore, uh, I think it's extra important that we understand the context leading up to chapter 12. Obviously, this is chapter 12. There's 11 chapters before this. And um, I'm just going to give you a really quick overview of what is in those chapters. And in the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 16, Paul gives us a kind of outline why he's writing. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And in verse 17, the next verse, he says, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul cares about explaining the gospel to us because we need to know what the righteousness of God is. We need to have an encounter with this righteousness. He starts off in chapter 1 to 3 kind of talking about how humankind, because of our sin, do not have right standing with God. We are not righteous. There's this big wall in the way. Chapters 4 and 5 kind of continue talking about how God gives us his righteousness through Jesus. That by believing in faith in Jesus, we are given right standing with God. It's that beautiful idea, again and again we hear it, the gospel. And then chapters 6 to 11 kind of expand on this idea. He kind of talks a little bit about Old Testament stuff, Jewish stuff. And then chapter 8, there's this beautiful chapter on assurance and joy that we can find in knowing the gospel for ourselves, what it means, what it feels like inside. And then chapter 12, it kind of takes this turn. He says, therefore, and it gets really practical. This is the bit where Paul starts to apply this chapter, this the gospel to our lives. So I wonder if you were writing a letter to someone, how, what would you write? What would you include? The bit that you get practical was the first thing that you would say to people. Because this is the first thing that Paul says to us. It's like urgent. It's coming out of him. He is desperate to tell, this, tell us this. Maybe the most practical, important thing that he has to say. Well, maybe just the priority. I don't know. But I want to say that this context is important because he says, therefore, and he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. He's talking to people that know God's mercy. Chapters 1 to 11, I've told you what the context is because that is God's mercy. That is the gospel. 
None of the rest of anything I'm going to share tonight makes any sense, will not work, will not do anything unless we have God's mercy in view. He's saying foundationally that is what needs to be in view. So before we go anywhere, here's the question. Do you have God's mercy in view? Do you know what the gospel means for your own life? Have you encountered it for yourself? If you're often like I am, I know I often have the gospel kind of over here to my side and I'm charging forward towards something that I'm trying to achieve. The gospel's yeah, like in my life, it's over here, but it's not in view. It's not what I'm focused on. So how do we keep God's mercy in view? How do we keep focused on it? Because Paul says that's what we need to do. But as the passage continues, Paul starts talking about how to discern what God's will is. And it kind of feels weird because he's talking about um, offering our bodies as a living sacrifice and then what is God's will? It kind of feels out of sync, but he's answering the question, when we sacrifice our lives to God and it's not obvious how to do that, how do we find out how to do that? Offer your bodies as a, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Let me just talk about time as an example to hopefully make this a little, make a little bit more sense. It's obvious that the Bible again and again talks about this idea that we're meant to use some amount of our time to love and serve other people. But the question is, how much time? What percentage of our time is used for fun and recreation and enjoyment and rest? And how much of it is used for volunteering and sacrificing our time for others? Should we spend every single moment of every spare day that we have at a homeless shelter? Because it's a good thing to do, right? How do we balance all the different priorities that we have in this world? And even when we do find a really good balance, where do we know where to invest into the Christian life often holds things in tension like work and rest or, or giving and saving up. But there's, there's often not black and white rules. There's a lot of gray area in all this. Even the question, what career path should I take? How often have us young people thought about what should we be doing with our lives? There's not clear biblical instruction, only be a policeman, never be a fireman, whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of gray and we need to work out, God, what are you calling me into? So here's the question again. Do you know what God wants from you? That is a huge question, right? Do you personally know what God wants from you? How do you discern the will of God in your own life? And Paul knows that this is a challenge because he says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. I think that is so beautiful that we can test and approve what God's will is for our lives. That he doesn't kind of just leave us here to work it all out ourselves. He wants us to be able to know. And we could spend our whole sermon here, but I just want to focus on two quick ideas. And uh, they're actually not very quick. They're going to be <laughs> significant ideas. The first one is patterns. I want to commend to you this idea that Paul knows how much pull our world has on us, how quickly we fall into patterns of this world. I think we all know that once we get outside of our culture, we go overseas or sit down and have a meal with someone from outside our culture, how different it quickly is. Us Westerners all fall into very similar patterns very quickly. 
but instead he says we're being called to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And this is actually a call to maturity. The whole Ephesians 4 passage that I've thrown in there is to kind of highlight this idea, and we're going to go through it really quickly now, and I'm just going to pull out key themes. There's so much here, and I don't expect us to look at all of it, but I just want to fly through and look at some key words and key verses in there. Here we go. Let's start with this. So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. So here's the first question. How are you being equipped? Uh, Me and Larry, Josh, we love this job because we get to get up here and hopefully equip you guys. Do sermons like this that hopefully give you skills or encourage you, inspire you to persevere. But we can't magically force you to become equipped. It actually is a two-way street of us both growing together. We do this because we love it, but it's also a journey that we're both involved in. Equipped for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Are you being built up? Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Are you seeing a pattern here? Maturity. Again, here we go. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect, every, every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each does its part. Again and again and again, Paul is saying we are called to be growing. And it's not just the pastors and teachers and stuff that are meant to be making you equipped, but you will see right in the end, the body works together to grow and build itself up. Are you helping each other grow? Are you getting alongside each other, challenging each other, inspiring each other, encouraging each other, sharing what God's doing in each other's life? This is all parts and ways of how we grow. And it continues, and Paul says this to warn us of what happens when we do not grow. When I tell, you, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. There's something important about the way that we think. It's again and again here. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Do you see that phrase there? They are separated from the life of God. In one level, that's terrifying, right? Have you ever felt what it's like to be separated from the life of God? Uh, I can't imagine how awful that would be. Having lost all sensitivity, they have been given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. And here's the last little bit here that we'll focus on. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to the former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be being made new in the attitude of your minds. It's almost the exact same phrasing as we find in Romans 12. And to be put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness. So here's another question to hopefully help this ground into your life. How are you growing? How are you becoming more mature? What physical thing in your life, what practice can you point to in your own life that says, that is how I am pursuing maturity? 
While traditionally, I think we Protestants in the church have kind of our three main ways of becoming mature, um, reading the Bible, praying, and coming to church, which are all beautiful ways, there is so much more. There are so many other ways that us Christians can become more mature. I just want to commend a few things to you. Lately, I've been deeply enjoying the spiritual discipline, the spiritual practice of mentoring. I'll bring this up again at the end, but it is maybe the best thing I have ever done. Getting alongside another older, wiser, more mature Christian and learning from them. We have other spiritual disciplines like fasting. I was so encouraged. I think Debbie fasted ages ago. and I, I keep remembering how much you just loved that experience. Go talk to Debbie. See how much she loved fasting. Sorry to put all the pressure on you. I wonder when the last time you tried fasting was. Or other things like silence and solitude, retreating, getting out of our daily life and being alone with God. I don't know if I've ever told you guys before, but I once went on this 24-hour solo retreat with God. I took a tent and some food and made a campfire. And it was weird and kind of scary at the start. And I was like literally alone in the bush with no one else around. But it was like, again, one of the best things I've ever done. Just to be alone, to find quiet, to find stillness, to just listen for the voice of God. Because these practices, when we do them, when we embrace them, when we chase after God in them, we learn to be able to hear God more clearly, to see what he's doing, to identify his voice, to discern his will. And that leads me to the second thing I want to say. That was patterns, and I want to talk about this idea of discernment. I'll go back to this verse for you. Discernment. I think it is so exciting that the Bible talks about the idea that we can test and approve what God's will is. I know I've gone through such a long stage of wondering what God calls my called wondering what God wants for my life, what his will for me is. He actually this verse says that we can test and approve, that we can know what his good and pleasing and perfect will is. So I just want to say two things, and the first half is to the young people in the room, and the second half is to the older people in the room, and because we've got a very young crowd, if you're like over a certain age, uh, you'll, hey, we'll just go, we'll just, you'll get it. It worked a little bit better this morning, but young people, this verse is a huge reason why you need older people in your life, why you need more mature Christians who have a more renewed mind than yours. This literally says, as we become more renewed, we're better at testing and knowing what God's will is. Ask someone. Learn to invite older people into your life to share their wisdom, to share their insight, to share their maturity with you. Ask someone to mentor you. I can't say this enough times. It is the best thing that you will probably ever do. If you're having a hard time finding a mentor, come have a chat to me. Come have a chat to Larry. We'll help you find someone. And older people, and maybe this means like 30 or... If you're older than some people, this is still everyone, so this is you as well. Older people, our young people need you. And maybe that's a youth kid in our youth group. I don't know. Everyone needs someone older than them. Who is someone younger than you that you can get alongside? Someone that you're slightly wiser than, a few steps further along the track that would love to journey with you. Have you ever asked a young person, found a young person, if they have a mentor? 
Just have a conversation with them about it. Get to know them. Pursue them. Invite them around to dinner. Show them how much you actually deeply care about them. I want to encourage you to be patient with us young people as well. But please, please, please also chase us. Because we young people can be really slow to understand what's good for us, but we need older people to pursue us like crazy. Cool, so let me give you a recap of where we've been. So in view of God's mercy, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. But in order to know how to actually do this, we need to not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Because then we can test and approve what God's will is. It's a beautiful idea. But let me continue. And as Paul continues, he raises another really important idea for us. It's that alliteration I shared earlier, using our grace-given gifts. And the, the idea that Paul is talking about here is this really practical issue of, do you know what your gifts are? If I asked you that question, could you name something? Could you write down a list? Could you name your top three spiritual gifts? Do you know what you bring to the table? Do you know how you contribute to the body of Christ? Verse 3 here, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Paul is saying, know yourself. He's not saying pretend to be someone that you aren't. Don't pretend like you're all, you're, you're perfect at everything, but know yourself. Think through carefully what has God given you to give to other people. What are you, what are you good at? What are your skills? I used to think that humility was going around saying that I wasn't really good at the things that I was actually good at. Can anyone relate to that? Pretending like I was bad at things when I knew I wasn't really that bad at things. Like, oh yeah, I scored five goals in soccer the other week, but I'm not really that good at soccer. Can anyone relate? Have you ever done that before? Because that's not humility, that's just lying. It's like a false humility Humility focuses on what other people need, and if someone else needs someone to help them play soccer, yeah, I'm, I'm up for teaching you how to play soccer. I'm not amazing, but I can help you learn some technique around kicking a ball. Humility knows what people need and helps tell other people their skills in a way that's actually helpful to them. We as a body need to be making sure that if other people need someone to help them in a certain area, yeah, I can help you with that. Humility is actually willing to say, yes, I am good at some things for the sake of helping other people. Sorry, let me just find where I'm at. But before, sorry, here we go. But before others can know what you're good at, you personally need to know what you are good at. Think of yourself with sober judgment. And I want to encourage you, if you don't know what you're good at, one of the best places to start, one of the best ways to find out what you're good at is to ask people around you, to ask friends of yours that you trust and that are willing to say, no, you aren't good at that. People that you honestly think will give you good feedback and find out, am I good at this? Because as Paul continues... For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to the others. The body works best together when we each know our own strengths, when we each know each other's strengths too, when the eye doesn't pretend like it can feel, and everyone knows that it's really good at seeing. 
We know the eyes have a vital function, but it doesn't make them any more important than the feet or the liver or the hands or, or whatever it is. We need to be able to be honest and know what we're good at. But this picture of the body is beautiful. It's, it's really important. It's a really good metaphor because if I spend the rest of my life trying to walk around on my feet, eventually I might get pretty good at it. I might be able to do like handstands and all that cool stuff. But if I'm always walking around on my feet, it's going to be really painful and it's going to be slow and I'm probably going to get a sore back and things aren't going to work well. If I start learning how to use my feet to write letters or type on a keyboard, it might be kind of like a fun party trick, but the skill of my hands will be totally wasted. So again, I'll ask you, what is your function in this body? Do you know yourself? Have you asked people to help you work that out? And here are some examples of spiritual gifts that Paul gives us. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. I think it's a beautiful idea that God's given us a mission in this world, but he's also given us gifts to be able to achieve that mission. This is just a small group of the spiritual gifts we find throughout the whole Bible, but I wonder if you've ever gone on Google, typed in list of spiritual gifts, printed out a list, looked through the list, and actually worked out, what are my spiritual gifts? Because you need to know. The people around you need to know. Uh, Lois, thank you again for sharing. I don't even know who you are, but... um, uh, she's gone. Okay, no, <laughs> that's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> I, I'm so grateful that Lois got here, got up here, and was able to share with us some of the beautiful ways that she's able to been able to use her gifts. It's a beautiful thing for us individually to know what is Lois good at. It's helpful. It's amazing that Lois knows herself and focuses in on the areas of doing things that she's good at. Because we need to know what each other are good at. Otherwise, we're going to try to get the ears to smell. We're going to try to get the encouragers to be up front leading. And we're going to be trying to get the servers to be prophesying. It actually doesn't make sense, right? We need to work well as a body and we need to know ourselves. Cool. So as I was um, sitting and continuing to write this sermon, I kind of got to the end of verse 8 and kept going to verse 9. And I was just thinking that I would go through all of Romans 12 and just kind of slowly unpack it, but I really felt God stop me. I felt like he wanted me to stop and and go a different direction with you guys. And the big question that I had on my heart is, is why is all of this actually so important? Why is this picture of a body so important? Because unity is really hard if we think about it, right? It's so much easier to hang out with the people that are just like us and hang out with the people that are easy to get along with or comfortable It's so easy to just stay in our comfortable little bubble and not want to grow either. When things get really hard, yeah, maybe I'll like adapt and move on from that problem. But growth is often not something we do in the easy times, just like like, um, Tom shared earlier. And sacrifice, using our gifts, knowing ourselves, being willing to serve each other in that way, again, isn't easy, right? It takes time. It takes hard work. It takes effort. So why does Paul emphasize these ideas again and again and again? Why is this first practical chapter in Romans 12 all about this? Why is it the first thing that he emphasizes? Because it's the exact same in Ephesians. If you look at the overall structure of how Paul writes that letter, the first three chapters are all like 
a reiteration, a, a theological explanation of the gospel. And then chapter four again, he gets real practical. Why is Paul so urgently talking about this picture of the body? And I think in our Ephesians uh, passage, uh, that's the thing I want to focus on. Um, Paul keeps talking about this idea of the body of Christ. If you have a look at the readings, he also says this idea, in quotes, that we are to become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what does it mean to be the body of Christ? What does it mean to become the fullness of Christ? I think if we look at the last kind of few teachings of Jesus, the last little pictures of Jesus we have in the Gospels, I think it becomes a little bit more clear. The last things that happen in the Gospel of Matthew is the Great Commission. Jesus gets his disciples around him and and says, all authority has been given to me, so go and do what I was doing. Likewise, at the end of John's Gospel, he, he, sorry, nah. Likewise, at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus asks Peter to go and feed his sheep. Jesus is giving Peter his mission. And one of the famous verses we looked at a few weeks ago, Jesus says, by this everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is handing over his mission to his disciples. And what we need to know is that while Christ's body is physically gone, his physical presence, his physical body on earth becomes his disciples. Have you ever thought about that? You are Christ's body in this world. We all know that this world needs Jesus desperately. And while he's physically not here, he's given you the mission of being his body, his presence in this world. Jesus' mission of restoring the damages of sin, of reconnecting people to God, of spreading his kingdom is way too important way hard, way too big to do by ourselves. But as a body, when the feet work together with the hands, the eyes work together, the liver, all the different bits work and do their little piece, the mission isn't nearly as big. This is Christ's plan for us. So let me just recap where we've been and I'll um, wrap it up here. That's just, oh, I'm behind in a few slides. There you go. Here's the recap of where we've been, and I'm just going to read this out to you. Jesus' mission wasn't finished at the end of the Gospels. Instead, he planned to empower us, to unify us, to be his physical body in this world. His plan was to raise up disciples that were so amazed by God's mercy that they were willing to sacrifice their lives in holy worship. That wouldn't just follow the patterns of this world, but would undertake a continual process of being renewed and transformed towards Christ-like maturity. And God planned to give us gifts that we'd be able to use for each other and with each other. So here's the big question at the end. Are you willing to join in on God's plan? How are you joining in God's plan? How are you taking up this mantle, becoming more like Christ and spreading his presence in this world? Because only together when we work together, when we love each other well, we become better together. We become more like Christ. This world desperately needs Jesus. And we are God's presence, Jesus' presence in this world. So Ben, come up and I'll just pray to finish this off. Lord God, I want to thank you for giving us your glorious mercy. 
May we experience your grace deeper and deeper. I want to ask that the power of the gospel would transform our lives. And as we are being transformed, as our minds are being renewed, help us to see our gifts and use them together. May we show this world who you are. Amen.